It was in Edinburgh in 1952, and it was one of the most gorgeous summer evenings I recall from that fine town. That evening, I invited a few of my old friends around for dinner, little realizing the terrors that were to await us. One by one, they came. Oh, hello. Gosh, terrible evening. Is this your television, Ariel? Lisa Wilson, a professor of Edinburgh at the University of English Literature. Can I leave my Austin against the lamppost like that? Jonathan Teal, actor, writer, inventor. You'd have thought he'd been able to pull one of them off. Next was Amy Patterson. I brought this bottle of wine, but I seem to have finished it off. A landscape decorator from York, and finally... Good evening. Timothy Kipling, who I invited mainly because he makes exceedingly good cakes. Just so. Would forgive me. I should introduce myself. My name is Matthew McTavish, and I am keenly interested in the paranormal and abnormal psychology. And so, our little group of friends assemble, as comforting and familiar as putting on a thrice-worn pair of underpants. Ladies and gentlemen, I expect you are wondering why I've invited you all here this evening. Well, they say revenge is a dish best served cold. Chicken casserole, however, is a dish best served hot. Shall we go through? Any chance of a top-up? We began the evening with cocktails in the lounge, followed by chicken wings in the library and parrot's feet in the pantry. We got talking about strange things that had happened to us, and agreed to each tell a single tale, a tale that would raise the hairs on the back of the neck, chill the bones, tingle the spine, and not exceed five minutes in duration. First up was Timothy Kipling. It all began when I consulted my doctor about my nerves. What appears to be the problem, Mr Kipling? It's been a long and stressful few weeks, Doctor. I don't think I can keep it up. Well, holidays can be like that. Can I suggest a return to work? It's got a lot to be said for it. Regular hours, free heating and stationery, plus retirement gives you something to live for. I'm not sure I can do it, Doctor. Oh, but you must. If only for your health. Think of your family. My family? Oh, God, yes, you're right. I will go back to work. Kipling! Good to see you back. We've got an assignment for you. It's all a bit hush-hush, so I can't tell you in front of the doctor here. You might ask why we share an office when there are such obvious confidentiality issues. I'm inclined to agree, so I'm going to mime it to you. From his crimson, agonised face and twisted features, I could tell that the trip involved a short stay in Wales. I must admit that, apart from that, I was a bit short on detail. But I was confident the rest would fall into place once I was there, so I packed immediately. Darling, do you think you'll really need the croquet set? I have to be prepared for all eventualities. You've already got the tennis kit. You're right. Perhaps I'll just take the tennis ball in my pocket. You know, just in case. You never know when these things will come in handy. I set off in my trusty Triumph Mayfair. The journey was relatively short and uneventful, and within a few hours I was pulling up at the small village of Clang... In small village. Good morning. Can I help you? I'm looking for an inn called the Two Fingers. Ah, now let me see. Uh, yes, if you carry on down this road until you reach the cross. I'm terribly sorry. I'm having a little difficulty with your thick Welsh accent. Uh, could you speak a little more slowly? Certainly, my dear chap. Uh, shall I shout too? Well, give it a give it a go. It's left at the first crossroads. Splendid. Top of the morning to you. And the rest of the day to yourself. Good morning, sir. Can I help you? Hello. I have a room booked for Kipling. Well, we have a room, sir. But what you do in it is your own business. I've given you one of the new portables. How did you hear about us? I decided to book when a friend said he was given the famous two fingers treatment in this part of Wales. I thought I might take a walk before dinner. A walk, sir? Whatever you do, don't stray from the path. 
gets a bit muddy, does it? It's the time of the month, sir. Don't worry, we all get a bit grumpy from time to time. I mean, would you have come here at this specific time for a particular reason, sir? No. Only what with the full moon, sir. Oh, how nice. Romantic. I can't say too much. The people here are not like others. Once a month there is a strange happening. A transformation occurs. You mean there's a farmer's market? Something like that. Have a pleasant stay. And so I retire to my room. Later that night, as I lay looking up at the full moon between the handles of my portable room, I heard a distant howling. As if some enormous beast was racked by unspeakable agony. It was a noise that chilled the bone and I was unable to listen to it without acting. I say, keep the noise down out there. Disturbed from my sleep, I made my way down into the bar. Evening, sir. Having trouble sleeping? Yes. It sounds like there's an enormous animal loose outside the hotel. Pieces of ice. I expect it's mice, sir. Nice parrot, by the way. Thank you, sir. Uh, nightcap? No, no, it's just the way I comb my hair. Ah, I see. Uh, a drink before bed, then, sir. I ordered a whiskey, and as he poured the dark, urine-coloured fluid into the scratched, lipstick-covered plastic beaker, I noticed that the backs of his hands were uncommonly hairy. Here you go, sir. How are you finding our little town? Changeable. Many of our visitors who come at this time of the year never leave, sir. I have a life to return to in London, and a wife and child, so I may stay a while longer. We all have to make sacrifices, Mr Kipling. How do you know my name? Piece of cake. I see. Well, you have the advantage. I didn't catch your name. Griff, sir. Griff. Griff. Suddenly I became aware of a third presence in the dimly lit bar. I turned, and from one darkened corner out of the gloom came the faint noise of some giant animal. As my eyes became accustomed to the dark, I noticed a pair of dark and cruel eyes looking back at me. I say, uh, should you be on the furniture like that? Barman? Ah, you've left. I see. And in your place is another large dog. Who would have thought this was such a town of animal lovers? Well, if you'll excuse me. I made my way steadily out of the hotel, as fast as my legs would carry me, pausing only briefly to trip on the step and mash my head into the linoleum. When I came to, a dark, hairy physical presence was, was advancing on me down the corridor. I hope everything is satisfactory, Mr Kipling. Perfectly satisfactory, thank you. Although... Yes? That's nothing. Everything as it should be. If you'll excuse me, I must run screaming into the forecourt now. I understand. Once outside, I was faced with four enormous dogs, each of which had fur as black as night, and deep red eyes, except for one, which was a spotty dog. It was then I remembered the tennis ball in my pocket. Oh, damn. Why ever did I bring this thing with me? What a waste of space. Perhaps if I throw it over there. Oh, they've all chased after it. Saved by a tennis ball. But wait, they're coming back. Damn you. Let's try it again. Fetch. There they go. <laughs> Oh no, but they've got the ball, and they're coming back again. And so it went on, all through the night, until finally at dawn. Mr Griff, isn't it? That's correct, yes. It's very good of you to bring my ball back for me like this. Well, it was a shame to just let it roll away like that. You should probably put some clothes on. Yes, how remiss of me. And have a shave too. Sir. Nice collar, by the way. Thanks. Good morning, Mr Kipling. Did you have a pleasant stay with us? Everything was tickety-boo. I'll be checking out now. And you slept well? Like a dog. You mean a log? Yes, sir. And thus my night of terror ended. I could almost have just imagined the whole thing. There was nothing more to remind me, and I was unchanged by the entire affair. Except for a lurking fear of the dark, a small scratch on my left arm made by one of the dogs, and a strange desire to move to barking. 
For the main course, I had chosen sausages. They sadly weren't a huge success. I looked on in disappointment as my guests looked at the sausages, their thin gray skins wrinkled and exuding a thin grease, with the sausages being little better. It was now the turn of Amy Patterson to tell us a tale, and I consoled myself with the thought that in this sort of thing the first couple of stories are usually shit. Well, it all started at the annual meeting of the Paranormal Society. The first guest speaker was saying he didn't think the Earth was spherical, but to be honest, it was a bit flat. Next up was a perpetual motion man, but all he'd prepared were a few ad-libs, and he quickly ran out of steam. It was getting late. We'd already played Pin Atlantis on the map, and a few drinks had been had when the lady next to me turned and said, I probably shouldn't tell you this. Go on. My name is Lady Priscilla Davenport, by the way. I've got the devil locked in my basement. Didn't Lord Davenport want to come this evening? No, not the old devil. The devil. The devil himself. Old Nick. Ha <laughs> ha, is that brandy? Shall I get you another? It might take a while. A week or so. I can see you don't believe me. No, not at all. I, I mean, entirely. You may have noticed. I ate nothing at dinner. Fish doesn't agree with me either. And I may be a little rusty. Have you tried WD-40? But I do have access to certain secret knowledge. Oh, is that Harry? Harry! Hello, darling. Oh, Harry, Harry, thank goodness. That woman is insane. She claims to have caught the devil in her basement. Is that a euphemism? I don't think so. Well, there's only one thing we can do. There is? We must break into the basement for ourselves. And that's not a euphemism either? No. Just checking. Nora double entendre? No. Although we might have to creep up her back passage to get there. I see. No, no, that was a double entendre. Oh. Let's just go, shall we? Okay. Checking first that the batty old dear was still at the party, we slipped out together. Obtaining her address was a simple matter of stealing her handbag, emptying it all over the floor and then looking her up in the phone book. Armed with this precious piece of information, we hailed a taxi, took it to the wrong side of town to cover our tracks, then walked to her home. Look, there's a light at the basement window. Let me try the front door. It's open. Did you hear that? Never mind. It's probably just a stray sound effect from the last story. We crept down the dark stairway to the tiny basement room and pushed the door open. They heard of WD-40. I use beeswax myself. You're living in the past. You need WD-40. It's for when it's stuck and it shouldn't be. Can I help you? Who are you? And what are you doing here? Um, you're the one who's breaking in. Oh, yes. But since you ask, I'm kept a prisoner here against my will. Against your will? Yes. I wrote a will. My mother was against it. Please, you are my only hope. I live in this tiny room with only my parrot for company. Pieces of ice. You must free me from my chains. My mother keeps a key locked in a drawer in her desk with her dockets. It's on a chain. She keeps a key in a locked drawer? Yes. But how did she lock the drawer if the key is inside? No, it's not that key. The key to the desk is kept in a necklace she carries in her pocket. A necklace? A locket? Indeed. And the desk? In the attic. And the attic? It's self-explanatory. So to release you, I must take the pickpocketed locket from her pocket to the dockets in the attic where the chain key is on a plain keychain. Yes. Well, couldn't you have just said... And for heaven's sake, oil that door. I see you have found the devil. Lady Davenport, you got here quickly. Well, I would have got here sooner, but someone emptied my handbag onto the floor. The things some people will do for cigarettes. This is no devil. This is your own son. He told me all about the locket and the rocket. The rocket? Oh, I may have misremembered that. But you must release him. Harry, break the chains. Me? Yes, obviously you. You don't know what you're doing. 
I imprisoned the devil here at the end of the war, having summoned him with a particularly good bread and butter pudding. I hoped to stop the spread of communism. He was red in those days, you see. Nonsense. Anyway, he's too small to be the devil. Well, they say the devil is in the detail. But he says he's your son. Did you think the devil would tell you the truth? Would your son tell you lies? He lied about the magazines. What magazines? The ones found by my mother under the mattress. You have a mother under your mattress? No. I'm finding this all very confusing. And you shouldn't convict someone while there's reasonable doubt. That's what my mother used to say as they carted her to the cells. How are the chains coming? Spot of bother, actually. Have you tried WD-40? Very well, if you want him freed. Let his chains fall to the floor. Did you do that? Me? No. It was me. So what was the point of all the locks and that sprocket nonsense? You have freed me from my evil stepmother. She was your mother a minute ago. I go off people. Will you marry me? I go off people too. I see now that this was all a ruse to lure us into your home and get a wife for your son. I don't get out much. It's probably the chains. It's no good, mother. This pretending to be the devil thing is no way to get hitched. Why can't I go to the clubs with the other boys? They're morally bankrupt. Whilst locking your son in a room little bigger than a closet. Mothers should always choose wives for their sons. If it was left to him, he'd choose someone with a personality. It's no good, Mother. I'm never going to go back in a closet again. In that case, perhaps I might offer to be a chaperone and show you a few of London's better regulated establishments. Oh, would you, dear boy? It would be such a relief. Oh, the pleasure would be all mine. Excellent. I love a happy ending. Now, did I hear one of you mention champagne? What was that noise? Is it coming from behind this door? Oh, ignore that. That door is... uh... stuck. Have you tried WD-40? Excellent. Excellent. Well, no doubt all that talk of brimstone has given you an appetite. For dessert, I have a little surprise I've cooked up for you. Burned Alaska. Uh, shouldn't that be baked, Alaska? Ah. Excuse me a moment. Uh, Miss Wilson, would you tell your story while we're waiting? My story? Yes, well, as you'll all probably know, I'm extremely fond of collectibles, trinkets and curiosities, and have collected a huge range of esoteric artefacts from all over the world. My flat is full of them. One day, I was admiring some of my things with my fiancé Michael. Some of this stuff must be worth a fortune. Look at this! Why don't you pick your way over to the window so we can see it better? really need all these empty gin bottles. It's one of my most prized collections. It's taken me nearly two months to get all these. Almost there. Gosh, who's that behind the sofa? Oh, I forgot. That was Millie, my maid. She slipped on a stuffed Vimarana and impaled herself on a South American fertility symbol. I've been meaning to get the gardener to clear her away for weeks. I think he's in one of those boxes. Over there. Beard darling, will you? Just behind the plain old carpenter's cup with the blood stain on it. Oh, never mind. What was it you found? It's a picture of me. No, silly. It's a mirror. Oh, yes. So it is. This would look grand in my hallway. And in any case, who else would want the picture of me? It's a mirror, darling. Oh, yes. So it is. Gosh, that's funny. What's that? You're in it too now. The picture. It's a mirror. Hmm? Yes, I knew that. I knew that. And so it was that Michael came to have the mirror in his hallway. A few days later... Hello, darling. I've been meaning to talk to you about the mirror. That old thing? Is it some kind of magic trick? How do you mean? Well, when I look into it, I see someone else's room behind me. It's not at all like my room. 
It's, it's tiny. Don't be silly, darling. It's a completely different scene. Luxurious Victorian drapes, a four-poster bed, a roaring fire in the grate, even in the middle of summer, a parrot on a perch. None of these things are reflected in the mirror. Can you describe the room? Clean, white walls, modern, Scandinavian pine furniture, pale white bed linen, stripped carpetless floorboards. It's horrible. There, there, darling. And the worst of it all, I can feel myself changing. You mean your personality? No, silly, my clothes. I don't have a personality. And that's why I love you, darling. Well, you two shut up. We're trying to watch the film. A few days later, I was walking through a few junk shops along Bond Street when I stumbled across something familiar. (coughs) Oh, I'm terribly sorry. Wait, I remember you. If you'll excuse me, my chauffeur's on double yellows. No, don't go. I have an important plot point to share with you. When you were last here, you bought an old mirror. I must hurry. If I don't keep moving, my nail varnish will never dry. I remember it because it was part of a large house clearance. Yes, it came with some Scandinavian pine furniture and white bed linen. What has this got to do with me? No, uh, well, it had with it some white walls and stripped carpetless floorboards. It's not ringing any bells. Oh, for heaven's sake. Uh, I thought to myself when I saw them, I bet they feature in someone's otherwise inexplicable hallucinations. Uh... Perhaps in a mirror... You mean Michael? Yes, um, uh, if you happen to know someone of that name. Yes, well, there was the strangest story behind them and the man who owned them. And so, so he began to tell man, me a story rhubarb, of infinite blah, strangeness blah, and sadness of the man who owned these objects before us and how he had cruelly dispatched his own wife. Unfortunately, for some reason, I talked all over the top of it and didn't hear a word. You can stop now. Sorry, but in case you didn't get any of that, I took the precaution of writing the whole thing down. Thank you kindly. Now, I must be going. Johnson, carry me. On the journey home, I leafed through the massive manuscript and began to understand what was happening. The owner of the mirror had been Gobson Jallery, a strange and lonely man crippled when a Scandinavian Christmas tree fell on his head during a works Christmas party. Crippled, he became bitter and suspicious and eventually murdered his wife in front of the mirror over a love affair she wasn't having. Poor man. That will be all, Johnson. You can put me down here. Mom. Oh, and where is the car, Johnson? At the repair shop, ma'am. Back on Thursday. Is that all, ma'am? Only I thought I might take the pretend car down to my sister's. That will be fine. I ran up the stairs to Michael's apartment, terrified of what I might find. On top of everything else, this man, Jallery, had a lisp and a sing-song voice. How funny. I couldn't wait to tell Michael all about it. I burst into his apartment. Oh, I'm sorry. I expect the maid will be able to wipe it up. I've been sitting looking at the mirror here and seeing what I can see. Michael, what has happened to you? Never mind that now. Listen to this funny story about the mirror. I've seen it all, you know. Seen what? I've seen the way you with the sofa look at one another. Do you think I don't know? How did you know? I, I mean, don't be silly, darling. Now come over here and let me kiss you wholesomely on the cheek. And now it taunts me. You know I haven't been able to walk since I was hit on the head by that Christmas tree. It was then it struck me. Ow! Careful! That was one of my stripped pine floorboards. I must get around to nailing these things down. Such is my hatred of all things Christmas tree related that I now savagely plane any pine tree I see into a floorboard. No, wait! The answer must lie somewhere in this 100-page manuscript. What about this on page 112? It says that Jallery was unable to pronounce his R's. We might need to have words with the whiter. Now come here and let me strangle you. Page 56. Jallery was able to walk a little by shuffling along. Strangling time, strangling. Oh, now that's not helpful. Look, 
on page 643. But you've missed page 38, where it says I can't read. Swangle, swangle, swangle! Ah, get back, or I'll throw the book at you. You wouldn't dare. As I felt my life slowly ebbing away, I gazed into the eyes of my loved one and smashed him with the book, then watched in horror as it bounced off his forehead and into the mirror. Ah, what's happening? Where am I? The mirror? It's smashed! No, but I really like that! Perhaps I can repair it. Nope! Completely smashed beyond repair! <laughs> smashed to bits! A- and you, Michael? Do you remember anything of the past few days? The last thing I recall is bringing the mirror back from your flat. Oh, Michael, you may kiss me. But first, just in case, I'm going to kick you in the nuts. Miss Wilson's story left a look of sheer horror on the faces of the men, lit red by the gently glowing embers that were all that remained of our dessert. Coffee was served to each guest by the maid, stewed as usual, while the coffee was a piquant little number that I had discovered during a masturbating tour of Czechoslovakia. That was before it was communist, of course. You couldn't do that kind of thing now. It had come to my turn to tell a tale of the supernatural. It relates to my keen observations of unusual human behavior, a field that is relevant to me both in my capacity as an amateur psychologist and in my professional life as a window cleaner. But it is about the former profession I wish to tell you tonight. I first met the gentleman in question, Arthur Riley, shortly before his untimely death. Doctor, you have to help me. Come in, come in, and tell me all about it. You can put your dummy on the coat rack. Big Riley? That's very good. Don't encourage him. (laughs) More, more! It's the dummy, Doctor. He wants to kill me. I see. And what makes you think this? He tells me. He's lying. I'm not. R2. Now, hang on. Big Bully. Just, uh... Little liar. Scratchy nails. Stop it, stop it, stop it. Now, is this true? Yes. He doesn't cut his nails. I mean about wanting to kill him. Yes, I just told you. I was talking to the dummy. Uh, it's, it's just a dummy. But you, but you said... I'm not some kind of nutter. You mean he thought... Never mind. Well, hmm. This is clearly an interesting and tricky case. Take two aspirin and we'll see if it's cleared up in a couple of weeks. Thank you, Doctor. Weirdo. Short ass. He left my office, but little did I know I was to see him again far sooner than I expected. Yes? Uh, Sorry, forgot my bag. No problem. Cheerio. He left my office. But little did I know, I was never to see him alive again. Extra, extra, ventriloquist from previous scene found dead in house, including mysterious circumstances that are attributed by the police as suicide. Read all about it. What happened to him? He was found dead in his flat, having shot himself in the back from across the room. Poor chap. And the really odd thing, there were no fingerprints on the gun. The only living thing in the house was a parrot. And although he was a ventriloquist, only the arm of his dummy was found trapped in the front door. But only one arm, mind. So, the dummy was not as armless as he could be. I was left wondering, could those no fingerprints have been the fingerprints the dummy didn't have? I dismissed such foolish thoughts from my mind. After all, we live in a rational world, a world where petrol-powered vehicles roam the streets, where man has conquered the skies and seen the stars, and not one where gnomes steal your boots in the night. Or so I thought. And every night the gnomes come and steal my boots. Not now, Miss Streperus. I'm with a patient. But it's only the no man, and you said if a man with a dummy came in... Mr. Riley? But it can't be. 
It isn't. My name's Percival Peeve. But I was here first. Piss off, gnome boy. Uh, Mr. Peeve, come in, won't you? What can I do for you? Well, I say... It's this ventriloquist dummy, Doctor. I bought it for a shilling on the Tottenham Court Road. It only has one arm. It was a second hand shop. I see. So you suspect the dummy of plotting against you? No. I just want to stop him stealing the best lines. I see. Well, this is a most interesting case. May I look at the dummy? Of course. A short inspection of the dummy confirmed my suspicions. It was the same dummy that Riley had come in here with not a week before. Mr. Peeve was in great danger. I knew the dummy would kill again, but how to protect him? He would think me a madman if I explained my concerns to him. Then I had an idea. Mr. Peeve, I am in love with you. May I move into your flat? Well, this is terribly sudden. I accept. Excellent. I'll be round at five. Mr. Peeve, I'm here. Do you always leave your door open? Hello? My God! Hello, Dr. McTarrish. We've been waiting for you. Or at least I have. Mr. Peeve here had an unfortunate argument with the Sato kitchen knives. I think he got their point. They'll never believe it was suicide this time. Indeed not, Dr. McTarrish. In fact, the police are on their way now. Need I remind you that only one of us is a dying? Damn you! The police will think that I killed him, unless two can play at that game. Now well, then, what's been going on here? Good Lord, he's dead! Come here, my lad. You're going away for a very long time. What have you got to say for yourself? Uh, gottle of gear. Gottle of gear. Gottle of gear. And thus, by masquerading gear. as a dummy myself, I was able to reduce my sentence to only 20 years hard labour by pleading insanity. My guests, weary from chewing, made their way into the drawing room, where brandy and cigars were provided for the men, and some part-finished embroidery for the women. And finally, and most horrible of all, the moment that had filled the room with dread expectation all evening, it was time for the washing up. But first, we had to listen to Jonathan Teal. My story begins in a seedy bookshop in a back street in Cairo just before the outbreak of war. I was browsing for light airplane reading before boarding my light airplane back to England after a spot of pyramid selling. I say, my man, do you have any Lovecraft? Easy's not that sort of bookshop, sir. H.P. Lovecraft, the horror writer. You know, iconography of nightmares and forms of secret worship, that sort of carry-on? Ah, uh, yes, sir. He was in here yesterday. Uh, no, the writer. Yes, the writer. He was in here. Oh, don't be ridiculous. What would H.P. Lovecraft be doing in a bookshop in Cairo? He was after a very particular book, sir. A very specific book. A most ancient book indeed, sir. Really? Yes, sir. And were you able to provide him with this book? No, sir. As luck would have it, I had sold it only the day before, sir. My interest was piqued. What was this mysterious book of such interest that H.P. Lovecraft himself had come to seek it out? Perhaps it was a volume of great power. Could it be the Necronomicon itself? Or perhaps a first edition eagle? I had to seek him out. Through cunning and stealth, I needed to find out who bought the book. Can you tell me who bought the book? It was a gentleman in a raincoat with a German accent. Hmm, shouldn't be too tricky to find. How many raincoats can there be with German accents in Cairo? Thank you, my man. Here, take this camel for your trouble. Oh, why, thank you, sir. I believe his name was Klaus. While you are here, can I interest you in a narrative device? What have you got? 
A diary that speaks your own voice, perhaps? Uh, no, I already have a narrator. Do you have anything more real-time? Now about this talking power. Pieces of right? I'll take it. And so, after the faintly racist incident in the bookshop, I began my search. First stop was a small drinking establishment that a group of expats known as The Gents had made their own. Excuse me, can you tell me how to get to the King's Arms? Roll his sleeves up, I expect. Thank you. Can I help you, sir? I'm looking for the gents. Round the corner on your left, sir. Thank you. Hmm, seems to be some mistake. There's nothing here but toilets. Oh, well, they say you should never walk past one. This is a right. Oh, sorry, are those your shoes? No problem. Suddenly, out of nowhere, he threw a punch at me, which I avoided by diving into the urinal. Fucking himmel! Gosh, that was Klaus. I must follow him. Barmaid, did you see a German with a gun wearing a raincoat coming this way? The gun was wearing a raincoat. Did you or didn't you? Uh... He had a moustache. Ah, yes. He went that way. Pip, pip. Taxi, follow that raincoat. Quite all right, sir. No, wait for me, damn it. Now I'll have to pursue him on foot. And so I pursued him through the crowded back streets until I rounded a corner and there, in front of me, was nothing but an empty raincoat, a disused moustache and a discarded German accent. Dash it. Now I'll never recognise him. Hold it right there, Teal. My name is Klaus Shave, and I've been hired by the German High Command to rescue arcane artefacts. Of course, and Lovecraft was onto you, hence his attempt to get the book before you did. Yes, he has tentacles all over the world, but he's now sleeping with the fishes. He's dead? No, he's just visiting his mother, I think. But you are in search of the cursed Book of the Dead. Quite possibly, yes. Well, you'll never take it from me. Now prepare to die. He raised his gun at me, and I prepared for the worst. Blood all over my shirt as well as urine. My laundry bill was going to be astronomical. When suddenly, a torrent of marbles came rushing down a side street and knocked Shave off his balance. His finger tightened around the trigger of his gun. The bullet rebounded off a scaffolding pole. In through a window where it struck someone making afternoon tea. Who threw the kettle of boiling water through another window. Where it struck a man holding a rope. Which was fastened to a piano he was moving through a window of an apartment directly above Shave's head. I say, that was a spot of luck. So much for this book supposedly being cursed. Pieces of right. I took the book back to the hotel and blowing the dust off the cover read the title. It said, The Curse of the Cursed Book Curse. And so, I began to read. My story begins in a seedy bookshop in a back street in Cairo just before the outbreak of war. I was browsing for some light airplane reading before boarding my light airplane back to England. I say, my man. Do you have any Lovecraft? It's funny you should mention that. He was in here just the other day after some cursed book thing. Did you send it to him? Do I know you from somewhere? I don't think so. Jonathan Beale's a name, I think. Or something like that, anyway. I sold it to this German chap a few days ago. Oh, wait. Here he comes now. I wish to return this book. Prices of nine. It says it is cursed, and yet I can find nothing cursed about it at all. May I have a look? Hmm. The curse of the cursed book curse. Let's have a look how it begins. My story begins in a CD bookshop in a back street in Cairo just before the outbreak of war. I was browsing for some reading just before my flight back to Blighty. Can I help you, sir? I have the strangest sense I've been here before. Are you Mr. Teal? No, the name's Jonathan Real. I think you have me confused with someone else. I thought I might take this book here. Basis of ten. Dinner or death by Gobson Jellyby. <laughs> you wouldn't rather have this one here. The curse of the cursed book curse. Sounds a bit derivative to me. I'll go for the dinner one. I've heard it's very good. No, dinner of death it is. Very good, sir. I think I may have read it before. How does it begin? Let's have a look, shall we? It was in Edinburgh in 1952, and it was one of the most gorgeous summer evenings I can recall from that fine town. That evening, I had invited a few of my old friends round for dinner. 
Little realising the terrors that were to await us, one by one they arrived. Terrible evening. Is this your television aerial? Lisa Wilson, a professor of Edinburgh at the University of English Literature. Is it alright if I leave my Austin against that lamppost like that? Jonathan Teal, actor, writer, inventor. Next was Amy Patterson. I bought you this bottle of wine, but I seem to have finished it off. And finally... Good evening. Timothy Kipling, who I mainly invited because he makes exceedingly good cakes. Just so. Well, forgive me. I should introduce myself. My name is Matthew McTavish, and I have a keen interest. It's not ringing any bells. Why don't you jump ahead a bit? Very well. A remarkable story, Mr. Teal. Particularly the twist ending. Thank you. There's just one thing I don't understand. Yes, Miss Wilson? Strange. You look quite different in this light. No matter. Where did the parrot come from? Francis of Eleven. Well, actually, I'm not sure. Isn't he yours? No. Wasn't there a parrot in your story, Mr. Teal? Yes, there was, Miss Patterson. I included it as a narrative device to indicate when we were inside the story. You mean... Of course. We're still inside the story. Wait... Can you hear that music? Mr. Kipling? Mr. Kipling? What's, what's happening to him? He appears to be in some kind of trance. You have been listening to a We Are Not Alone presentation of Dinner of Death by Gobson Jallery by John Thrower, featuring Matthew McTavish as Tim Hounsom as Timothy Kipling, Jonathan Teal as Amy Hughes as Amy Patterson, Amy Patterson as Lisa Walsh as Lisa Wilson, Timothy Kipling as John Thrower as Jonathan Teal, and Lisa Wilson as Matthew Nation as Matthew McTavish, with other characters played by the cast. The script was written by John Thrower, with additional material by Matt Nation, edited by Nathan Rowe, and music by Kevin MacLeod. For a full list of credits and to download our previous series, visit www.wearenotalone.co.uk. We Are Not Alone is produced by John and Lisa Thrower. I think that was the end credits. Have I time for a quick drinky? We may not have long before the end. We have to solve this quickly. Yeah, it's all right. I've seen these things before. They go on for ages after the credits. I remember a time.